It's planting season, and it's not too late to make sure your crops grow up fed and happy. Regardless of your spring crop, Fed and Happy offers a variety of worm-casting solutions in liquid and solid form to supercharge your soil, your yields, and your profitability. For fast, vibrant germination and seedling growth, mix your seed with Fed and Happy's screened granular castings pre-drilling. The Fed and Happy liquid seed treat and extracts offer the ideal mix of soluble solids loaded with living beneficial biology, mycorrhizal fungi, humates, and more. The Fed and Happy small spreadable castings are ideal for fast, easy soil incorporation. The large offer long-term stability and soil growth. But you don't have to figure this out on your own. Just call 833-GO-WORMS to speak with our farm team experts for a fast turnaround on a custom solution for your needs. Fare better against pests, disease, drought, and other potential hazards this season with Fed and Happy Worm Castings. Visit FedandHappy.com for a healthy harvest and any lawn, garden, and tree care needs. Available for pickup and on-farm delivery. That's F-E-D-N-Happy.com. Or call 833-GO-WORMS. Happy planting. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's high time. We had a high time. Together. Together. Yes, it's high time. We had a high time. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, your host and cannabis lifestyle guide. Last week, we talked through social change through activism with Andrew D'Angelo. And this week, we're showcasing the work of a legendary cannabis rights activist whose 35-year-old message couldn't be timelier. Our newest normal during the pandemic has created a lack of demand for oil, which has created its own monster of a global panic. So now we've got more oil floating around than anyone knows what to do with or where to store. Major world economies currently hang in the balance over something that never had to actually be a problem. There have been eco-friendly manufacturing, fuel, and energy solutions my whole life. I mean, hell, for a hundred years that remain unavailable to us on an industrial scale And we're dissuaded from and even jailed for using plant medicine that we can grow for ourselves in our own garden versus leaning on the pharmaceutical industry and doctors for whatever pills they're pushing. Free energy and plant medicine, it doesn't bankroll special interest groups, big ag, or the pharmaceutical industry. You jack hair-loving pot nerds in the room know what I'm talking about. Jack Herrer told us hemp could save the planet when he first published The Emperor Wears No Clothes in 1985. And I think now is hemp's time to shine, but people, it's going to take a village. So my intention with this episode is to inspire you to do your homework on hemp beyond using CBD for wellness or sprinkling hemp seeds in your morning smoothie. Build your awareness of the history and versatility of hemp 
and how important of a role it can play in rebuilding the American economy during this proverbial reboot in a way that honors our planet. So settle in, my friend, but let those wheels keep on turning with this Jack Herer-inspired hemp history sesh. It's time to get casually baked. I got the bottle of wine, the high dollar kind. I got the West Coast smoke, but I better just take one. Today's guest on the podcast is a son of arguably the most famous and effective cannabis rights activist our community has ever known. Jack Herer is remembered by many as the Emperor of Hemp. And his son, Dan Herrer, is here today doing his part to carry on Jack's legacy. Dan, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Certainly. Now, out of curiosity, how old were you when your dad had his aha moment with hemp and began his journey as an activist? <laughs> well, I think the two were uh, a, a decade or more apart. My father first discovered cannabis at the age of 30. Um, when, uh, in 1969, he had, uh, separated and divorced my mother and moved into an apartment building, uh, in the San Fernando Valley. And, uh, he had met a young woman there that was in law school at the time. And he was looking to date her and she wouldn't have anything to do with him, uh, because he was too square. (laughs) <laughs> and she said, Jack, we just can't hang out, you know, because, you know, your views are really extreme compared to what my understanding of life is. My father was a Barry Goldwater Republican. He was an ex-military uh, police officer from the Korean conflict. And, uh, you know, his views on uh, cannabis or back then marijuana mm-hmm. um, and counterculturists and hippies and anti-war protesters were very extreme. And he thought that uh, they were all terribly unpatriotic and should be taken out and summarily shot. And she's just like, Jack, I can't hang out with you. You're just too square. And after months of trying to date her, she says, look, you want to date? You're going to have to smoke some, <laughs> some pot with me. And um, he finally relented, engaged in smoking cannabis and found out, you know, uh, the aha moment was that it was the best experience that he ever had. You know, he heard music better than he had ever heard that, you know, he had heard music in color and that the food that they shared that night was the best food in the world. And, and, and the intimacy that they shared was, the, you know, the most amazing intimacy of his life. And he was like, how could this plant be illegal? Right. And it posed that question. And, he, you know, he didn't go crazy, didn't murder anybody. You know, there, there was nothing that related to anything remotely that he had ever learned about uh, marijuana throughout his entire life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he started to educate himself. He started looking at history uh, prior to the 1930s and started, you know, realizing that everything that he had learned, everything that he had been taught, everything that he had believed um, from this government was a lie. Right. And uh, that started him down the road of activism, being one of the supporters of the original Prop 19 in 1972. And that, that led him to be the proponent for virtually every marijuana or cannabis or hemp initiative from 1972 to, to the, you know, the year that he passed in 2010. 
he was either the proponent or the supporter of, of the proposition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he then dedicated the, the rest of his life to ending prohibition and, uh, you know, bringing truth back to the understanding of the importance of what cannabis and hemp really could be and what it could do and the things that it would be able to provide for us as commu- as community leaders and uh, community builders to, you know, international business. Absolutely. And how old were you when all of this was ramping up for him? I'm just trying well, to kind of put myself like, you know, where you were in your development, because now <laughs> you here you've come and, you know, you're inspired to join the movement. So I'm like, where did all that kind of happen? Well, there was no joining the movement. There was just being part of it. There was, you know, I, there was, there was no line to, to, uh, to stand in to join. Um, I started understanding more about cannabis when I was 10 in 1972. And my father's first book that he published called Grass was put out in 1973. So this book was um, just a, a grading system on cannabis that, you know, talked about, you know, what your cannabis um, high should be from a stone, very stone, very, you know, extremely Yeah, high, you made a scale for it. I got it. And, and, um, and what you should be paying for, you know, what you should be looking for and the description of what those highs were. Oh my God, it's like the and, Kelly Blue Book of pot. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing for me and how I connected with it is that all of the illustrations throughout this book were done in the furry Freak Brothers type animation. And it became my coloring book as a kid, oh you God. know. So I was there coloring in, you know, what hippies look like and, you know, what people look like <laughs> when they were stoned and smoking cannabis. So that was that's how I connected to cannabis. Not that I was using it, but it wasn't no, but it, it wasn't portrayed. It, it wasn't portrayed to me that it was dangerous. Yeah. It and it was normalized. Was, yeah. So so that was my introduction. And then. Uh, as I became a, a teenager, I started to understand it more as I started to experiment on my own outside of my father's, you know, knowledge initially uh, as a 12 and 13-year-old. Um, and then going into high school, you know, being the kid that had the best pot, you know, and, hey, we're, we're meeting over there after lunch or after school and we're going to spark up a joint. And so so cannabis was never something that uh, that I was afraid of, nor was I I shielded from it, but I wasn't encouraged to use it either. At right. that time. I think right now is a great effing time to talk about hemp um, and the myriad of ways it can benefit us and our economy and the planet, you know, because right now the oil industry is in turmoil dealing with essentially the entire global population sheltering in place, you know, waiting out this pandemic and the economy is tanking. But we have reports that the planet is thriving during the shutdown. So there's evidence that decreasing our dependence on fossil fuels works. And there are plenty of plant-based solutions primed to offer free or affordable energy solutions like hemp. Can you speak to that and, you know, where we are right now? Sure. But let's, let's go back a little bit when we actually had a choice where we weren't looking for solutions. Uh, for global uh, climate issues. Um, you know, in the early 1900s, as we were developing as a nation through the industrial, you know, expansion of, of business throughout the United States and around the world, hemp was still one of those products that was 
incredibly essential to many, many businesses and to the future of industry. Um, but it was not as cheaply or readily available as petroleum became in the late 1800s and the 1900s, um, where synthetics and, and, and petroleum-based products were starting to become more uh, affordable, more profitable for industry. And in the early 1900s, cannabis or hemp uh, was was being slated to replace all trees for the use of paper making materials and consumer packaged goods, and this was during the same time where we started coming out with consumer packaged goods cereals and candies and all of these things that were going to be um, delivered to homes not just around the United States but uh, around the globe. You know whether it was. Mars candy bars or Hershey bars or M&Ms or, mm -hmm. you know, cereals or breads, all of these products. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 1916 did a study saying that one acre of hemp would replace four acres of trees for paper making material. And there was going to be no reason to ever cut down another tree for creating anything from a consumer package goods, you know, from papers, napkins, boxes you know, mm -hmm. newspapers, right. you know, any types of publications. And there was a, there was a German engineer that uh, invented the first decorticator. And this decorticator uh, made it efficient and affordable to take hemp and turn it into uh, papermaking material for the newspaper industry, which uh, this happened in San Diego, California. Uh, he took it to the family that owned the, the local newspaper there called Scripps. And if you're if you're familiar at all with San Diego, now today the the script's name is part of uh, the fabric of San Diego from its its hospitals, from learning centers, from all types of buildings uh, that that bear the script's name, and even on today's television, I believe it's uh, DIY or HGTV. One of them is owned by the Scripps Corporation, but in the early 1900s. This engineer said, I can help you lower the cost of your paper, your newspaper, by as much as 50% if you use this technology. And he wasn't going to embrace it. But after speaking and, and having communications with William Randolph Hearst, who at that time owned the largest personal mm -hmm. holdings of tree farming in the United States for the use of making newspapers, mm -hmm. Hearst publications, Hearst newspapers across the country, that he felt that cannabis was uh, a great threat to his paper empire. Certainly. And therefore, hemp was then shunned, even though it was going to create better products and less expensive than trees. Um, and at that time, also not using the sulfuric acid process uh, that would have turned the, the tree pulp into paste and then back into paper. It, it really became this, this choice that we had at, at this moment in time where we could have we could have gone to this hemp-based product instead of this tree-based product, and uh, since then uh, the 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 synthetic uh, or processed um, you know world that we live in today uh, really started to take hold and thrive and create you know billions and billions of dollars for industries who now use synthetics and and other uh, you know products that hemp could have replaced. We are now looking for solutions for the choices that we made 100 years ago. Yeah, we were at this crossroads, and yep. uh, we took the wrong path. 
And, you know, now hemp legalization is rapidly expanding in the U.S., but because of that time where we weren't able to do anything, like we don't have the capabilities to meet the demand that we now need to fix all of the issues that we have now. So we really totally screwed ourselves. Big business screwed us, I guess I could say. Well, here's here's the thing is most industries, as they developed and they, they looked at becoming ne- necessary infrastructure parts of the building of America, um, in some cases were subsidized by the government. You know, these large industries, these, you know, um, it happens in our auto industries today. It happens in our technology industries today. It happens in our railroad industries. It's happened uh, in the development of new technologies for the betterment of society. But before we understood that some of these technologies would actually end up hurting our planet, mm-hmm. and we were only looking at what these products would mean uh, from a financial standpoint instead of an ecological you know, repercussion from using. And whether it was ignorance, whether it was greed, whether it was, you know, just... Or a combination of the above. Yeah, right. And, you know, I I hate to think that our our government and our industry is just so sinister that they knew that there was a better way, but it wasn't cheap enough to make them profitable and that they put profit over the planet. And I think today the, the problem that we have is, yes, Hemp is becoming uh, a legal part of um, what may become here in the United States. But it is still hindered from a progress standpoint because the government itself is not looking at this opportunity to take this, this plant technology and apply it to, um, you know, helping to save the planet, helping to save our country, helping to save our water helping to save our oceans, because in in many respects, our government is not looking at global climate, at least currently, uh, as a real issue and something not not to really be concerned about. So the infrastructure that would be needed in order to make clothing that didn't require half of all the pesticides, weedicides, and herbicides on the planet, like cotton, that, you know, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to use hemp and to be able to process process hemp and mill hemp and then use all of the other bone, uh, bonus added, you know, uh, value uh, that hemp brings, whether it's in hempcrete or hemp plywoods or, or you know, hemp papers or plastics, that the infrastructure needed to bring this new technology is not something that the private market has the ability to do on its own. Because the infrastructure for something that that life changing, that's something that's so broad that it that replaces or partners with technologies today that use synthetic or far you know more dangerous processes in order to make products. Instead of working with these corporations and changing how they make things, we almost have to make all new infrastructure investment in order to become this new viable replacement product. Yeah. And we don't have that support from the from the federal government. In fact, we have anything but that. Yes, there was a 2018 farm bill. And yes, it said that farmers can grow hemp. But then they start looking at, well, we only want you to be able to do this if it's, you know, away from schools because it looks too much like marijuana and we don't want to confuse people. And they start using the same lies and falsehoods that they use to create prohibition against not farming hemp, but against marijuana in the 1930s. And they apply those same laws, those same lies, those same falsehoods 
to the to the foundation of the guidance to the access of this plant for commercial use. So they're still using these spheres that that created prohibition. So therefore, even if we are now in 2020, two years after the farm bill, we are not supported from a a governmental standpoint uh, in this new agriculture building um, because they can't get out of their own way and allow this new technology to take off with the support and understanding uh, based on truth from our government. You know, I'm from a farming and ranching community in Texas. And when you think about it from a farmer's perspective, you know, that's really scary to put a lot of time and energy into something when you don't know that the supply chain is there to to support you and to move things through. And, you know, and there's such a demand for CBD. It's like now, you know, the mainstream focus is hemp equals CBD for medicine. And it's like there's so many other things that every other thing you right and so you know there's so many different segments of the market for people to dive into new frontier data came out saying that 51 percent of u.s and eu consumers combined report planning to purchase hemp-based products within the following year so you know as far as just like a mainstream view of yes we understand what hemp is and the general kind of idea of what it can do for us. So we've reached that tipping point. So now I feel like it's time that we really dive into those other segments and we you know, have to start educating people that it's farming, it's food, it's paper, it's fashion, it's fuel, it's right. building materials. It's so diverse and we do need the government support to make this happen in the right way. So how do we close that gap? Okay. Closing the gap. Education is first and foremost. If you don't understand the plant, if you don't understand its possibilities, if you don't understand its history so you could understand what the future could look like, then you're already starting at a deficit. And when the correlation between when you're saying that, you know, 50 or 51 percent or more are, uh, of people um, in different countries are looking to, to, to purchase temp-based products, what is hemp-based products? My guess is it's probably more like, oh, we'll start using uh, CBD lotions and, and hemp hair, you know, uh, hair products. And, and they're really not looking at the broader aspect of, of what hemp really is. Hemp is plastic. Hemp is paint. Hemp is glue. Hemp is, is clothing, like the clothing that I'm wearing right now, although you can't see it here on the radio <laughs> uh, or, or on your computer. But my, my hemp shirt or the hemp hats that I make, through my company, Hair or Hemp, you know, these are, uh, these are products that are part of our daily life and the fabric of America and the fabric of the world. You know, so when we're talking about when, when we hold our phones in our hands or we see the plastic that houses the, the LCD screens in our TVs, all of these products could be subsidized. Uh, you know, they, they could use hemp-based plastics instead of petroleum-based plastics in order to create these housings, in order to create the, the, the structure around the products that we use every day, whether it's our laptops or our TVs or our phones or the taillights on car, cars or the interior parts of automobiles. Now, now today, you know, we, we already have hemp in our, in our midst that we use every day that most people around the world don't know. Most people don't know that since 2009, Mercedes-Benz has been utilizing hemp products 
to create the door panels and the dashes and other supplemental parts inside their Mercedes-Benz since 2009. I didn't and know that. Same, That's hot trivia. Since 2002, BMW has been using these, this same product, these same, this same plant. And these are the luxury car manufacturers. And, and so, so and which is really even funnier is because there are so many people that are more affluent or, mm-hmm. you know, um, that aspire to own a Range Rover or a BMW or a Mercedes. And, and these are the same folks that might also be standing up and shouting at the top of their lungs that they don't believe in cannabis and they don't believe in hemp and they don't believe in these things. Yet the cars that they're driving are, are surrounding them with a the plant that they would stand up against, even though that plant is making their car more environmentally friendly, that it's making the interior uh, of the car safer for a human to be in uh, if there were an accident, that these products make the cars greener than they were. And these, these same people, you know, these companies are not going out and saying, we are using hemp because it's a better product. They're not even talking about it. So being able to use hemp in a building platform um, like hempcrete or hemp fiberboard, which are now coming hemp insulation, mm-hmm. you know, things that we could use in every single day living here in the United States and around the globe to make our homes better, safer, non-toxic, biodegradable, you know, certainly more environmentally friendly on virtually every level. Right. And, but we don't, we don't understand these products and we don't have the industry infrastructure in order to create them, to make them competitive to the products that are, are available through these large scale mass manufacturing, uh, you know, industries that are supported by multi-conglomerate, you know, uh, corporations and the government in order to support their existence. Yeah. You are preaching the gospel of what your dad always said, that, you know, hemp can save the world. And he curated all of the details in his book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And the latest release and first ebook edition of The Emperor Wears No Clothes is perfect timing right now. If a listener's never scratched the surface of hemp, like we're talking about right now, this is definitely the book to give you that full scope. Dan, what sorts of things will the hemp novice find in this book that can then translate to them going out in their communities and activating that? Well, first off, understand that this book was written 35 years ago. And at that time in history, um, it really brought back an education that was removed from our understanding and our history and our vernacular through our curriculums and schools and any other thing that would have educated us to its its importance in the creation of this country. And what it does is it really sets a tone of understanding that for, for those who believe in hemp, but maybe not know about it, for those who believe in cannabis and have understood from personal use um, the benefits of relieving stress and making you happy and potential health benefits by being able to, you know, uh, somehow, you know, help many of the diseases that we are afflicted with, uh, not just here in the United States, but around the world, that it might help with some of these symptoms or, or problems that are, are created by these health issues. And it, it goes through painstakingly through documentation uh, and, and shows and proves the application of hemp, the use of cannabis, the possibilities of using products that change our lives, that are part of our lives today that we don't even know. And, and really, it sort of crystallizes uh, and solidifies a, an understanding that is previously unknown to us. 
And then 1985, it ignited a new revolution that inspired people to find their voice because now their belief was based in fact and not just theory or, or, you know, well, this is what I believe and it's never hurt me. But now here's solid evidence that cannabis actually helped to create the United States of America and any developing country around the globe, cannabis was at its, at its center, at its core. And that this book in the late 1980s, the early 1990s, literally helped to create the volume of uh, immense uh, feeling and belief that cannabis had to become part of our lives. And that, that demand went to Prop 215, which was a Compassionate Care Act written by Dennis Perrone in 1996, which gave us our first legal cannabis access because people believed that this plant could help people who were ill. It connected to people from a very visceral level that that this plant could help their loved ones who might have been afflicted with AIDS or dealing with the, the complications of cancer. And it got people to think with their hearts instead of, of, of the things that they had learned through lies and falsehoods. And it gave them strength. And then from that strength, they were like, well, if this was a big lie and we know that cannabis is helping and all of these other things, then, then the understanding of, of all of these possibilities with hemp that was already laid out in our own history of how important it was from the canvas covered wagons, which is the cannabis covered wagons that came west, mm-hmm. to canvas sales were cannabis sales, to all of the great works of art that are in any museum around the world are painted on hemp canvas. Mm-hmm. As is our constitution. And, you know, as, as was our constitution, as was our first flag, as was all of our clothing, as was the grease for the wheels the, that of, of, the, of the wagons. Yes, I love that. that came, the no. Yeah, the hemp seed was used to grease wheels and stuff. I mean, I love it. Every bit of the plant was used. So, so this book goes into all of that, and it lets you know how important this is. But now with this new edition of this ebook, you know, instead of, instead of just writing uh, or rewriting my father's book, what I did is I left the book alone in its state, in the, in the ebook edition. It is, it is there in its entirety. But what we've done is we've put hyperlinks throughout the book. So as you're reading about history and it's talking about Henry Ford making a car, that you hit an e- you hit the, the, the hyperlink and it takes you into today where we're making parts with BMW and, and Mercedes and the hemp car that Bruce uh, Dietzen built. And it, and it takes you in and out of, of what you were reading about the history of cannabis into today and, and, the, and the options and the, and the hope of tomorrow by using this plant. So it goes in. It goes into the 1940s um, when the United States government, after making cannabis illegal during the World War II, made cannabis legal again because we needed it so desperately for the war effort that they literally made a propaganda film called Hemp for Victory, and they encouraged every farmer in the United States to start growing hemp in order to help defeat the Germans and the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And, and and then as soon as the war was over, uh, they mothballed the project and then denied that they even made the film or that cannabis was ever even legal again. Yeah. And to see how Jack and friends went to D.C. and they're like, we are finding this documentary. We're finding this. Well, it's not a documentary. I think that's so fascinating. And they did. 
They found it. And and I will include a link to the 1942 Hemp for Victory video in the in the Casually Baked show notes. If you go to uh, YouTube, you can also look at, um, you know, The Emperor of Hemp, which is a documentary made about my father uh, in 1999, which is a spectacular documentary, has a great soundtrack. But this book in an ebook edition has all of that already built into it. You get the, the, the Emperor republished. You get all of the hyperlinks, including testimonials, new discoveries, uh, documentation on, on medical studies. Uh, you'll get access to all of these videos. You'll get just a world of information that is now part of the original book that my father wrote. If you want an actual tabletop book, you can still order now. It will never be out of print again. Uh, you can order the actual paperback version uh, through Amazon as well. Okay. Um, and the ebook, the obviously the the printed book is obviously not interactive like the ebook edition is. Yeah. So there's no hyperlinks <laughs> in it. That, you know, so it's just the turn page book, and the turn page book does not have the updates that the e edition has, because I did not want to touch my father's work at this time. It really is uh, a fascinating read. And the one thing that it did in the late 1980s and early 1990s is that it inspired them to find their voice. And today, even more than ever, it needs to inspire a new generation to not just be okay with the fact that we have cannabis access today, because access is not necessarily legal. We have paid access, but we still don't have really legal cannabis. We still don't have really legal hemp. We have access to these things. If something is legal, you know, I'm still thinking that how could there be a pathway to prison if something's legal? You know, I can brew a thousand gallons of beer in my garage. No permits, no nothing. Mm-hmm. I can go do that. And I can give it away to my friends and I can do whatever I want. No problem with that whatsoever. I can only grow six plants. And even in some states, that's illegal, even in medical states. Mm-hmm. So if you know, if something is legal, how could there be a pathway back to prison because of it? And that comes back down to what is the lies and what are the truths? And when you read this book, you'll realize that the truth is out and cannabis is the future. And without building our future based on truth, we'll never be able to get out of this quandary that we're in as a society, trying to understand the applications and the importance of this plant. Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because in the beginning, everybody thought Jack was crazy. And even his peers began discrediting him, you know, because, you know, but he kept on sharing the truth and fighting for legalization. Yeah. I mean, he dedicated his life to it when people are calling him a crazy person. And as the truth always seems to, it managed to come out and people finally began to see the light and hear the message and recognize that what he spoke was truth. And he ended up becoming a hero of the movement. I mean, it's the best hero's journey ever, right? (laughs) It it really is. And in some cases, you know, I mean, it's in, you know, I'm really, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to have somebody like my father in my life that was in my life that taught me things. I wish today the things that I'm doing, uh, republishing this book, I wish I could be doing it with him. The company that I have in California called uh, the Herald Group Selling Cannabis, 
uh, you know, or a part of the cannabis industry. I wish he could see that because his face is part of every product that I make. Mm-hmm. You know, the the clothing that I'm making called Hair or Hemp is branded with his name and his signature. You know, I wish I had these things today. But the one thing that I do have is the legacy of my father is not actually me at all. It's not even this family. The legacy of my father is everybody who's been touched by this plant and inspired to be a part of its existence in their existence. And the people that are dedicating themselves to developing new technologies and new applications and products. I, I go to hemp events and conferences around the world, and I see the influences that people have taken from him, even if they don't even know that they got these influences from him mm-hmm. or the book that he wrote. And I'm inspired every day by the legacy that he's left for this planet. And, and I am the smallest part of that. Well, I agree. He is an absolute gift to our planet. What what big initiatives um, do you have at the Jack Herrer Foundation that y'all are focused on right now? Right now, uh, I have the opportunity, um, and I'm working on the very first brick-and-mortar Jack Herrer Foundation Museum of Cannabis and Hemp. will hopefully open later this year or the beginning of next year. Um, after we, you know, get through this incredibly uh, difficult time with this coronavirus sequestration and, and, and issues that we have. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, we'll start being able to have people come in and, and live and see and touch history and look at cannabis uh, through a, a brand new lens, a lens that there's no fog, there's no gray, you know, that it's just truth. And, and like you said, you know, it's so interesting that the truth is coming out. And it's because you can only sequester truth for so long, and it will find its way out. It will find its way to the surface. And then once that truth is realized and seen, then things do have to change. Because at that, if they don't change after the truth is out and the evidence, then there is such great evil at work that I, I would hate to even think that that was a possibility. Yeah. I concur. Now, this brick and mortar, where's the location? It it is going to be just outside of downtown Los Angeles. Okay. Um, in uh, about three thousand square feet. Now, did I hear a rumor to a Jacker conference and business center? Oh, okay. Well, now I thought I heard a rumor that there was going to be a mobile museum in the works. There is. Our mobile education facility uh, is something that takes uh, a great deal of uh, funding. It has been very, very difficult to raise money uh, in the cannabis industry uh, oh, yes. today, mm-hmm. um, mainly uh, for, for many of the same reasons that uh, cannabis and hemp are, you know, even though they're making billions and billions of dollars in sales across the United States. But when you look at those numbers, it's really billions and billions of dollars in sales to the states or the cities. The companies that are actually engaging in cannabis, whether it's recreational or medicinal, the level of extortionary taxes that are levied against their existence and participation in in the the commerce of cannabis um, is so extraordinary that most cannabis industry companies are not making real profits. You know, they're making sales, which equates to value 
but it doesn't mean that these companies are making money. And since cannabis donations are not considered tax deductible for the people that make them, uh, you know, the donations that come into the Jack Herrer Foundation is really just from on-site fundraising when I go to events like uh, NoCo Hemp in Colorado or the Hemp Expos in Hawaii uh, or anywhere else where there might be uh, hemp education and hemp products that are that are, are being seen by the public. And so, you know, raising money as a foundation has been very, very difficult. But what I have done is I've partnered with somebody that has this building, that has the energy uh, and the ability to help make uh, the, the brick-and-mortar facility a real possibility in the next few months where it's not going to be based on uh, contributions financially. I mean, we would certainly like that. Um, but the fact that we have the opportunity to start building this uh, is incredibly uh, meaningful, and I'm so glad to be a part of it. And we're, so this is going to be moving forward faster than the mobile education okay. uh, facility, which is about a half a million dollar project yeah. that we, we just don't have the ability to fund. Um, but this, this infrastructure, the building is already owned by somebody. They're yeah. donating the space. Collaboration so, you know, is a beautiful thing. And, and the love of this plant and the community that it's represented by um, is is a beautiful thing. Well, if people so that's what's happening today. okay. Well, if people want to get involved and they want to show support of Jack Herrer Foundation and the things you're doing, where can we point them? JackHerrerFoundation.org. And do you have a social presence? I do, but I'm horrible on social media, and I'm spread out, unfortunately, so thin uh, between. Uh, trying to um, build this cannabis brand, trying to uh, engage in the hemp branding of Harrow Hemp, and uh, now um, the, the release of this of, of this <laughs> ebook that uh, I, I am a uh, I, I am really overburdened and understaffed and underfunded. Well, that's fine. That's a long-winded way to say you're not very good on social media, but th- I totally get it. <laughs> I can relate to that. Well, I certainly appreciate um, you taking the time. I think I can say on behalf of the entire cannabis community that I want to thank your whole family for your sacrifice and service to the plant, you know, believing in something with every fiber of your being and dedicating your life to it is not for the faint of heart. And I know that it couldn't have always been easy on your family and thank you for, you know, allowing your father to be a gift to us and our planet. And I wish you all the best carrying on his work. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate you being, uh, uh, being able to do shows like this to, to really uh, let people know that there's real information out there that is uh, truly life-changing if, uh, if you can find it and embrace it and live it. You know, it's a powerful thing. That's why... You know, they say that, you know, this is this is the cannabis community. And, you know, and, and I always say it's community, not commodity. You know, yes, you can commoditize it. But this plant builds families. It builds towns. It builds relationships, you know. Yeah. And that's what makes it a community. And my father, you know, in, in, the, in the 1970s, as I was growing up, you know, we, we were, you know, we were the cannabis community in the San Fernando Valley. And then he wrote a book in the 1980s that that community became a little bit larger and then it spread to other states. And then 
you know, our community got a little bigger and then a little bigger. And now the cannabis community is global. You know, we have hemp farms in Yugoslavia. We have them in Russia. We have them in China. We have them in Thailand. We have them in Europe. We have them in South America. You know, hemp is now being embraced for what it used to be and the importance of what it needs to be. I'm, I feel blessed every day, and uh, I'm overwhelmed the most every one of those. Um, but it, this was my choice. You know, I, I chose this path. Even if I was born into it, it was still my choice to stay here. The cannabis community is a great place to live in and around. I appreciate uh, you being a part of it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. In our culture, we tend to believe experts speaking in their field. And we've come to believe that 10,000 hours is kind of that required time frame. And I know Jack Hare racked up more than 10,000 hours in his quest to learn the truth about hemp and cannabis and the plant's relationship to us, our government, and the planet. That said, I think there's a place for The Emperor Wears No Clothes in everyone's library. It's a trustworthy encyclopedia and field guide for hemp and cannabis. And as someone who's logged thousands of hours writing, curating, and organizing content, I have to point this out. Every bit of truth that you read in that book was curated by someone who at the end of all of that research and after absorbing all of that data, still believed hemp could save the world. I'd only amend that now to say that hemp and mushrooms together can save the world. But that is a whole other episode. As for The Emperor Wears No Clothes, I have the new ebook and those hyperlinks with new and relevant media clips amongst Jack's original text is a really nice touch. You might sit down to read, get three pages in, click a link, and find yourself watching a related documentary for the next hour and ten minutes. I mean, it's like a choose-your-own cannabis learning adventure. You can purchase the first edition ebook of The Emperor Wears No Clothes for $9.99 on Amazon. Get one for you and gift one to a friend. Share it with your gardening group or your book club. Find out if the book is in your local library. If it's not, request it. Remember, we don't all have to have the fervor of Jack to help the cannabis movement grow. But you can't just be okay that we have paid access to cannabis now. We need to develop an industry infrastructure that can support our economy and heal our planet. And that takes effort from everyone. Think of little ways you can share knowledge and lend support. A great first step? You got it. Share this episode of the podcast with a friend or family member. And engage me on social. I'm at Casually Baked on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Email your can of curious questions to me through the website at casuallybaked.com. And if you're inspired to do me a solid, rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And become a podcast patron at patreon.com backslash casuallybaked. That's the currency of the podcast world, people. And like everybody else right now, 
your mama is just trying to get paid. In the meantime, I am sending virtual hugs and smoke signals of love. And I hope you'll puff puff pass it on. Casually Baked the Podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Arnav Gupta. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.